Welcome, everybody, to Shaping Vaping, our weekly conversation into the latest in vaping policy. Our two guests this week are going to help us explore a topic near and dear to me, which is vape shops and the communities they serve. Uh, first, we have Spike Babayan, who is the co-founder of Vape New York, which she started along with her partner to help people quit smoking with the help of vaping. She opened four shops in New York City, both in Brooklyn and Manhattan, but the war on vaping is claiming her shops as casualties. Our second guest is Helen Redman of Filter Magazine, who I think now has the distinction of being our very first repeat guest here on the space. She's an expert in and reports on tobacco harm reduction and drug policy. Thank you both so much for making the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to. And sorry for those technical difficulties at the beginning. And I just want to give a reminder for our audience, if you have any questions along the way, uh, please raise your hand in the space and we'll do our best to give you a chance to ask your questions of our guest. So I wanted to start off today and talk about uh, Spike and your shop, Vape New York, and Helen's recent story. So the inspiration for the conversation today really came from the excellent segment that Helen recently wrote and produced for Filter that recently profiled spike in her business. The story resonated with me and I heard echoes of my own experience. Spike, I wanted to start off by asking if you could tell us your story. How did you come into the world of vaping and why did you start your business? Sure. Um, I'm going to try to do the fast version if possible, but in 2008, um, one of my you know, co-workers was vaping and said, you should try this thing. I mean, you know, and he was a four pack a day smoker and went down to like nothing. And I was like, that's not possible. Like you're a four pack a day smoker. It's crazy. Um, and I tried it and I was like, oh, this could definitely work. Um, by January of 20, uh, 2009, I had stopped smoking and I was like, everybody should have one of these. Then uh, Suffolk County, which was one county over from me, tried to ban the product um, I was horrified and I was like, this is going to save so many people. Like, how can they do that? So I decided I had to fight. Uh, they said, you need to have studies that show that this is safe. We went out, raised a whole lot of money. We'd started doing studies. Um, we got some evidence that showed that it was not toxic. <laughs> um, and once we had that, I was like, well, now that I know that, I think everybody needs to have one. So I'm going to open a shop. Uh, and I did. In 2011, we opened the first shop in New York City. And in 2013, the first vape shop in Manhattan. Uh, first shop was in Queens. Then we opened in Manhattan. Then we opened another in Manhattan. Then Brooklyn. Um, eventually, the store in Queens closed. But we did end up opening one in East Harlem in 2017, uh, which is the one we're about to close. So that's the, the fast version summary. That is a quick version of a lot of history. Thanks for that overview. And, you know, I know so many of us um, that own vape shops have a very similar story of just realizing what the products did for us in our own lives and, and wanting to share that with as many other people as we could. Um, I want to read one of the quotes from Helen's piece. Uh, she said, um, she quoted you, we opened these stores because we wanted people to have more time with their grandchildren, because we wanted people to breathe easier, because we wanted people to not spend their lives getting chemo and radiation for lung cancer. We quit smoking and we thought everyone should have that chance and the government took it away. Um, as we know, local vape shops have helped thousands of people um, on our way to millions of people to quit smoking. I think it sometimes gets lost in this debate over vaping policy that our industry is full top to bottom of people who do what they do to try to help other people. Um, and I wanted to know if you could speak to that role that your vape shops play in helping people quit. 
So when we first opened in Queens, you know, we were in a very low income, not so nice neighborhood, uh, but we knew there were a lot of smokers there. Uh, and we opened there because we thought, you know, these are the people that really need this product and a lot of them smoke and we can help them to get off of cigarettes. So we, we actually still have some customers from that first little shop in Queens in 2011 and they still come and buy their liquid every week and they still don't smoke uh, and they're still here. And a couple of them were told that they had lung cancer and didn't have much time left and that they were going to die and they had to go to chemo radiation and they, they would, you know, if they didn't quit smoking and they had no other choice. And, and, you know, I, we frequently hear from them that, you know, oh, you saved our lives. And we're just grateful to be a part of their journey to stop smoking because it was so hard for so many of us that were two pack a day smokers, three pack a day smokers. And we were the ones in the beginning who needed this the most. And so we felt like it was important to make sure that everybody had that chance. Um, and I think that, you know, as we continued to open stores, we realized that there was a big risk and, you know, we weren't taking any money out of the business. We just kept opening more stores, thinking if we had more stores, we could reach more people and more smokers that wouldn't otherwise find us or wouldn't otherwise go out of their way to come to us. Um, and so we never really took much out of the business. We just kept putting it back in. Uh, but that was important. It was important to make sure that we got to as many people as possible. I remember back you know, in 2009, we said, if every person who vaped could just convert one more person from smoking to vaping, we could double in number every month. If we did that, we would be a millions by the end of, you know, two years. And, you know, we just thought that that would be the way to stop everyone from smoking. Um, and, you know, it, it worked for a while. And then the government interfered and started telling lies and spreading, you know, false statements and putting out poor media and, saying that vaping caused heart attacks when the heart attacks were caused before the person started vaping and insane things like that. And uh, so it's been an uphill battle this whole time, but we kept going because we saw that it was changing people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, today is a super hard day for me, just kind of on a personal note here. Um, 14 years ago today, I was actually standing in a hospital room at my stepfather's bedside while he was dying of lung cancer from a lifetime of smoking. And, you know, I stood there and I watched my brother lose his father and I watched my mom lose her husband. And it was, you know, absolutely one of the most tragic experiences of my life. And, you know, what I, the only thing I regret about vaping is that we didn't find these products sooner and discover the technology sooner so that people like my stepfather could have used these products and avoided, you know, all of these terrible diseases and deaths that come with smoking. Um, but Helen, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, in, in doing this piece with Spike, um, what have you learned about the role that vape shops play that maybe customers aren't getting at bodegas, corner stores, big box chains, you know, maybe some of the things that those businesses can't or won't do? I have to say first, when I met Spike, it really, she changed my life and, the reason she did that is because I was doing uh, tobacco harm reduction vaping groups at New York Harm Reduction Educators, and I know a fair amount about vaping and the products, but I felt really, really alone in, in doing this work. And I met Spike at a Safada conference in Texas, and we just started talking. It was like, you're in New York, I'm in New York. And so that really began 
a really important partnership for me. Again, not not feeling alone that I had uh, an expert uh, to go to when the people in my group were telling me this doesn't work, I don't like this, uh, a whole array of, of problems as we know on the journey to switching. It isn't just, I found the device, I'm ready to go. And so I've been able to work with Spike to deliver really great products to people and then having them go to her shop, actually uh, to the one in East Harlem, which tragically is closing. So in the group, we can talk about any issues, but then I could always say, go visit Spike's shop, either she or one of her employees, they know what they're talking about, they can troubleshoot, they can give you even more support. And I think that's really important because I look at vape shops as smoking uh, cessation centers. I mean, that is the place where you go and get education. There's community there. There's support. And the thing that is unique about Spike in, in New York, uh, I'm, I don't know about other states, but she really has a commitment to working with the most vulnerable groups of smokers. So she wants to go where the smokers are. And they're very much in, in East Harlem. And uh, so we've had a really great partnership. And I'm, I'm sad, I'm angry that her shop has to close because, as, as I said in the piece, we actually need more vape shops, not less. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that, Helen. You know, a lot of the the small business owners I know lost a lot of stores in 2019, 2020, and it was such a blow to to public health for for those places that are such a wealth of information and resources to be slowly taken off the map. And Spike, I'm I'm so sorry to hear about what you're going through. Um, what, is that your last store that's still open? So we do have two stores left. We have one in Brooklyn and one in Midtown Manhattan. Um, I had a customer come into the Midtown store the other day and they said, you know, I've been vaping for five years and I learned more in 10 minutes here than I have in the last five years of buying vapor products, either online or at smoke shops or wherever. And they said, I can't believe I didn't understand what a vape shop was sooner. And I know I see a bunch of other people listening on today that are, you know, are vapors and vape shop owners. And I know that they do the same thing. I know that they're employed. They only hire people who vape. They, I know that they teach people when the people come in how to use the product. And, you know, that's kind of a, the essence of what you were asking Helen is like, Helen is like, you know, what do we do differently than the smoke shops? What are we doing that makes a difference? And people understanding how to use the products and even as they get easier, you you know, easier to use where people don't have to figure out as much or do as much to make it work. There's still some level of learning curve where people, <laughs> I have people, I mean, for the people who are vapors who are listening, they'll understand this, that you have somebody come in and they're like, oh, I need to buy, you know, a five pack of coils and a 30 milliliter bottle of juice. And you're like, why do you need five coils for a 30 milliliter bottle of juice? Like the coil should last you for, you know, 10 days, two, two weeks. And they're like, no, it only lasts me for one day. And I'm like, why would it last for one day? They're like, I don't know, but it always tastes burnt after one day. I'm like, are you letting it sit for 10 minutes before you puff it? They're like, no, why would I do that? <laughs> I'm like, 
how did nobody ever tell you this? And like, I don't even have to hear the laughter, but I know there's people that are, that I see listening that I know are laughing right now going, of course, because they just, they have no idea because the people in the smoke shop are just happy that they're buying a five pack of coils every single week with a 30 milliliter bottle because they make more money. So, you know, it's like these simple things are things that you don't learn if you just buy a vape. Um, and maybe for the people using disposables, that's not as relevant because their vape is already, you know, wet and soaked. But then there are people who buy disposables and leave them sitting, not used for three days, and then they can't understand why it's not working very well. Well, you left it open and sitting, not covered in plastic, not in a Ziploc bag for three days. It got dried out and it's disgusting and you can't use it anymore. So, you know, there are things that people just don't get caught if they're not in a vape shop. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important. And especially as Helen was saying, for people who are in, you know, vulnerable populations, like people with mental illness and people who are, you know, in recovery programs and people who are homeless, even who need something that's going to keep them off of cigarettes, you know, things like providing a place for somebody to come in and charge their vape if they don't have somewhere that they live, or if they're in, you know, a homeless shelter and they're afraid to plug it in because they don't want someone to steal it. Like things like that are things that vape shops will do, but smoke shops don't. They don't even think of those kind of things. And a lot of the times they don't even interact with the consumers enough to understand what they need or what they're not doing. They're just happy they're taking their money. So, you know, that's that's the biggest difference that I can see between a vape shop and, and you know, some of the other places where people buy e-cigarettes. And I think that's the saddest reason why shops are closing. I mean, we have two left, but you know, one in Brooklyn and one in Manhattan, we're not going to reach as big of an audience. And it's, it's, you know, taking it away from the vulnerable populations because the stores that we had in Queens and in East Harlem and in the Lower East Side, where you have a lot of people on low, you know, on, on public assistance are closed. And the ones that we have left are in Midtown Manhattan, where you used to have a lot of people, but don't so much anymore since COVID. Um, and Brooklyn, which is, you know, also the one we have in Brooklyn is in a higher income neighborhood. So, you know, it leaves everybody in a difficult situation and takes away the opportunity for these people who really, really needed this product. Um, it makes it difficult for them to get it. They don't have to go, you know, a much further distance in order to get their products. And a lot of them can barely afford their liquid and their coil. Now they have to pay for a train because they can't walk to the nearest shop. And that's that's really sad. It's been breaking my heart to have to close this shop. But I also can't afford to go bankrupt and lose all of the stores because that takes away the opportunity from everyone. Yeah, Spike, you know, my, my heart's broken for you. It's so sad. As we know, I the, the data is very clear. Smokers, um, you know, primarily, disproportionately, lower socioeconomic status, uh, members of the LGBT community, uh, people with struggling with mental illness, you know, these are the people that are smoking cigarettes at the highest rate. And so any attack on vaping is going to take away options from the people who need options the most. And so, you know, I'm, I'm definitely sad with you. And just you sharing that point about giving people a safe space to charge their vape, that's not even something that I would have thought of, but even something, you know, that small can make such a big difference in, in somebody's ability to remain smoke free for that day. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely sad for you. And I hate to hear that for your customers as well. Um, Spike, just really quickly, I wanted to ask if you could refresh my memory on something, because I think the, the first time um, I, I learned about you and your work was at one of these incredible hearings where you tossed some money over a balcony. And I, I wonder if you could tell us that story. So we were at New York City Council hearing and 
they had decided that they were going to ban flavors. We had been fighting this for many, many years. The first time the flavor ban was proposed was 2003 in New York City was 2013 or 14, I think, uh, by Helen Rosenthal. No, by uh, Linda Rosen. Linda Rosenthal. Oh my God. I'm getting all the legislators mixed up. <clears throat> it's been too many years fighting this and they change too frequently, but they're all the same. Um, <laughs> so 2013 or 2014 was when it was first proposed. And we had <clears throat> fought it successfully for all of these years. And, you know, we had been happy to be able to, you know, beat it back down or at least, you know, make sure there was something more important on the agenda than us. <laughs> so, so we had gotten lucky so many times. Um, and then it finally came to a point where they just had had it. And somebody offered enough money if they put it through and they said, OK, we're going to do it. Uh, we had heard, you know, from through the grapevine, I won't give any specific names, that um, the council members were threatened with their jobs and told, if you do not pass this, you will not have a seat here next next term and you will not get reelected. And we will make sure of that. Um, they refused to come forward or say it in public. But we, we know that that's what happened from, you know, two, two or three sources we, we heard that from. And so we knew it was going to pass and we knew that it wasn't an option to, to stop it. Um, so my friend Tammy uh, from Shore, Shore Vapors, I think was the name of her shop before she closed it. <laughs> I think she closed that shop in uh, Long Island, came into the city and said, you know what, I'm coming with you guys. I'm going to fight with you. And we took lots and lots of dollar bills and kept them in our pockets. And of course, nobody was going to stop us from carrying money in. Uh, and we went up to the balcony and when they said yes, it, it, they, did, they didn't even wait for people to vote. They just said, OK, it passes. <laughs> they didn't even wait for everybody to say I. They were just like, yep, looks like it passes. OK, on to the next item. And I, you know, we threw the money over the balcony and, and we explained to them, you know, it's all about the money. We just kept yelling. It's, 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 it's all about the money. We know, you know, how much money will it take for you to give us back our flavors? Like, let us let us not smoke. Um and, you know, it's funny because almost every vaping related story goes into the media. Uh, but that one was not very publicized uh, because we made them look like idiots. And it was kind of fun to watch them picking up the money. Um, and it just kind of I had some pictures of it that I look at just to remind me every once in a while that it really is all about the money. They will they will literally sell their mother's soul for a dollar. And it's sad. but That is what it is. It, it is sad. And that was the thing that was so crazy about it. They were actually picking up the money. Um, but yeah, I just I wanted to have you talk about that for a second, because I remember when when I saw that happen. Um, yeah, I had so much respect for what you guys did, because somebody needed to call it out, right? I mean, so so often in these debates, it's about fiscal notes and economic impacts when people lose sight of the fact that this is about real people and their lives. And this shouldn't be some abstract conversation about what is essentially blood money. Uh, so I, I just really appreciated that and the passion that you had behind that. Um, and I'm not I'm not surprised the media didn't cover it. Uh, but I wanted to talk now about, you know, impacts of, of FDA and the, the giant saga that we've been through with FDA since 2016. That's really come to a head um, since last fall. Um, as a as a fellow vape shop owner, I know for a fact that it's been a tough time for retailers. We had Evoli in 2019, uh, COVID closures in 2020, and then we had this PMTA bloodbath in 2021. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit what it's been like for you running your shops while FDA is is on this crusade to wipe all the vapes off the market. Yeah, I mean, it, it, for us, it goes back to 2006, really to 2016, because we made the decision 
that we were going to comply with the FDA regulations and we were not going to carry any products that were new and made after, you know, the date, the evil date. And so we carried older model products and we carried the best of what worked, but we didn't take in any new products for quite some time, for a number of years before we finally just said, okay, you know what, we're not going to survive this if we don't break the law. <laughs> um, but we were probably the only shop in America who, who did do that. Maybe I think I heard of one other that said that we were, they weren't going to, you know, come come out, bring out any of the new products. They were going to stay within the restrictions that the FDA provided of only older products. And, you know, it, the employees like were like, are you crazy? Like every other shop is selling it. I was like, I understand that they're selling it, but I don't want to end up getting shut down. And unfortunately, our shop is in the limelight because I have a big mouth. <laughs> so... So I don't want to end up putting us on the map where they can come in and say you're selling products that are post 2018, blah, 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 you know, whatever. So anyway, um, long story short, that was our first downfall. And that put a pretty bad economic turn onto onto our business and was really when things started to go very bad for us. And then, of course, we had the uh, Evali and, you know, that was uh, not easy, obviously. Um, and during all of this time, of course, we're still fighting the flavor ban every single year fighting to try and keep the flavor ban from coming because we know if that comes, we're done. Uh, so we, so then Evali comes and actually I was just, I, somebody just asked me about an interview that I had done with New York one news during Evali where I, I said to the guy and, and I had already done an interview with him. And I said, if you don't tell the truth when you come this way, this time, like if you don't put on the news, what I say, I'm literally going to find you and I'm going to hurt you. <laughs> I was like, you need to tell the truth. So he interviewed me and he actually used what I said. It was Zach Fink from New York One News. And he he said, and I said to him, you know, he said, and what are your feelings on this? And I said, my feelings are that if the, the government and the media would tell the truth about what is causing Evali, that this child who's 17 years old wouldn't have died if you had told the truth and they knew what they weren't supposed to use that child would not have died. And that's your fault. And I, I said it to the guy, you know, and, and I didn't think it would ever get used, but he did use it. And it's still actually online. It's still available online, which was the first time. And, and, and the only reason he used it is because after he asked that, and I said that he asked me a bunch of other questions and I just kept repeating the same thing over and over again. <laughs> I didn't give him anything else to use. And I kept him there until one thirty, two o'clock when I knew his deadline was so he had nothing else to use. He literally had no other soundbite that he could use. And so he used it. And um, that, I think, was the first time that, you know, the, the truth that really needed to be out about that was out. And that was that was already too late. I think that was November of 19. That might have been it was October or November of 19. And, and people had, already, you know, 50 or 60 people had already died. But it was the first time someone had died in New York. And because of that, you know, he had to have a story. Um, and I was grateful to have that. So obviously most, almost every vape shop lost 70, you know, 60, 70, 80% of their business during Evali because people were afraid and the government kept telling people e-cigarettes were killing people. The media kept saying e-cigarettes are killing people. And of course, you know, when, when the government and the media says that, and then the vape shop says, no, it's not. Well, the vape shop makes the money off of the e-cigarettes. So no one's going to believe the vape shop. They're going to believe the government and the media because they have apparently no stake in this so it made it really hard to combat that and even though the doctors started coming out and telling the truth it did it didn't make a difference because they weren't getting media coverage the media was was blacklisting the the, the doctors who were trying to tell the truth and the public health advocates 
who tried to get the truth out there to save people's lives. And they just didn't listen. They put out what was going to make the most money or get the most clicks. Um, then after Valai, we had, you know, again, pushing on the flavor bans. And then we had COVID. Um, and of course, the, in New York City, the essential businesses were the ones that sold cigarettes and the ones that sold liquor and the ones that sold, you know, whatever, cheese doodles. But the vape shops were not essential and we were not permitted to be open to let people come in and buy product. So at some point we were allowed curbside delivery or curbside pickup where the people were allowed to come to the curb and pick up the product. But in New York City, delivery is illegal because they can't be sure that it's 21 and over. However, you can deliver liquor and, and just make sure that the person checks identification when they deliver it. But you cannot deliver vape products is against New York City law. So we had a lot of difficulty. Uh, I'm not going to say that no one did deliveries. I'm sure people did deliveries because, you know, you have to get people their vapor stuff. Otherwise, they go back to smoking. Um, but that made things very difficult. And then, of course, even once we were able to have customers, we couldn't have customers come into the shop in groups. We had to limit exposure and have one person at a time and have the employees behind a plastic curtain and change the arrangement of the furniture so that you didn't have people hanging out in the shop and vaping which of course meant they spent less money because they weren't looking at additional products that they might not might have bought if they had had time to sit around and look. So they would just come in, pick up their liquid, a couple of coils, and they would leave. Um, it reduced the, the sales by at least, you know, 20 to 40 percent. And that was a pretty big blow. And then, of course, came the final nail in the coffin when they passed the flavor ban. Um, and, you know, we all know 93 percent of, you know, vapors are not using a flavor that is tobacco or menthol. Uh, well, not using a flavor that is tobacco. If you include menthol, the number is a little bit lower, but 93% of people are using a flavor that is not tobacco. Uh, and so when tobacco and flavorless were the only ones left, uh, that was pretty much it. That made it really difficult. Um, and so we've been struggling and, you know, doing the best we can to uh, pay the rent at this point. Yeah, it shouldn't be so hard to to try to help people get off of cigarettes. And there are so many obstacles in the way. Um, you you said at least ten things that we could spend so long unpacking. I think so many good points. Um, but you know what you said about Ivali and and your interview with the local news. First of all, it it exhibits a very good understanding of how the media works. And so good job uh, trying to prevent them from pulling some of their usual tricks. Uh, but second of all, it's a good segue into what I wanted to talk about next. Um, and Helen, I wanted to take a minute to ask you some questions about journalism around vaping is obviously this is one of the big topics that we focus on on the Twitter spaces, you know, misinformation in the media. We've seen hundreds of news stories about Juul, profiles of their founders, etc. CBS News recently published an interview with the founders of Puff Bar. But the beating heart of the vaping community isn't in these corporate behemoths. It's in neighborhood vape shops run by people like Spike and myself people who want nothing more than to help others quit smoking like we did. And, you know, and your piece on this was obviously fantastic, but I wonder why there's so much, um, so little media attention paid to the small businesses and the people that run them. Um, meanwhile, we see these, you know, Puff Bar founders, you know, have these long segments on CBS News. Um, before I attempt to answer that, I wanted to say something about Ivali because, it really was incredible to live through that hysteria. And recently, a group of uh, researchers and physicians approached the CDC and uh, said they were very concerned about the name 
because it doesn't reflect what really happened and it creates confusion, stigma, etc. And this letter, which was signed by a number of people, including Cheryl Healton, Amy Fairchild, Tom Miller, uh, Michael um, Pesco, uh, said exactly that. The name is misleading and it needs to be changed. And the CDC responded by saying, we're not going to do that. And that was really incredible because we know at this point that nobody who, uh, you know, it's tragic what happened uh, to these folks who used uh, tainted THC cartridges, uh, but uh, not correcting that is just really incredible, knowing what we know right now. And really, the name uh, for this should be vitamin E-related lung injury, literally. And we need to retire Ivali. But it reminds me, take people back a couple decades, when HIV AIDS first came on the scene. And uh, what they were seeing, um, they called uh, <clears throat> people who were getting sick. They weren't sure. They knew it was HIV. Um, they didn't know a whole lot. But the first name was called Gay-Related Immune Deficiency, GRID. And the gay community was outraged because they knew it was infecting other groups of people. And they had to do the same thing. They had to go to the CDC and say, you calling it this disease is making more people hate us uh, and causing violence and, and, and stigma. And eventually they, they, they got it changed, but they had to fight uh, to do that. So I wanted to, to bring up that example uh, we're in good company in terms of fighting, um, you know, ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, who had to fight against uh, uh, having a, a disease named gay-related immune deficiency. So why doesn't the corporate mainstream media pay much attention to small vape shop owners? I think because they just don't think they're relevant to the whole uh, debate and the whole world of vaping that they think it's uh, tobacco companies, it's Juul, it's Enjoy. Uh, they don't they don't look at vape shop owners as part of this landscape. Um, so that that's where I think maybe other people have have other uh, theories about why they don't. But I think I think. There's, there's that. And, uh, you know, I've said this before, the mainstream media has coalesced around a particular narrative and they all print the same kinds of stories. And that is uh, Jewel um, is about addicting a new generation. Uh, the tobacco companies are moving into this space or they're they are in the space to addict another generation. And so that's what they talk about all the time. And of course, let's throw in uh, the teens, uh, the so-called teen vaping epidemic. So they have certain points that they coalesce around to hammer home time and time and time again. And really, another part I think that's central to the way they tell this story is that uh, they 
continually, you know, they're using the tobacco industry's past, which we all know about. It's pretty outrageous. And they're linking the tobacco industry's past um, to the future of the vaping industry. And they're trying, they're conflating and saying they're just one of the same. And nothing could be further from the truth. And I think the vape shop owners' stories give lie to that narrative, right? When you hear Spike talk, when we hear you talk, Amanda, when we hear other vape shop owners, like it totally cuts against all of that, all of those lies. We know the vaping in the U.S., it was a creation of people who smoke, right? Had nothing to do with tobacco industries. They came in later. They're not able to innovate, right? That's why they bought an interest in Juul, right? And so I, I guess that would be the other thing is that if you do talk to vape shop owners, if you go uh, to Safada, if you go to um, American, you know, Greg Connolly's organization, they do actually interview Greg um, and you, Amanda, the organization you're part of, it gives lie to this narrative and they don't want that. Yeah, thanks. I always appreciate conversations with you because you have such great uh, context from the harm reduction world and, you know, historical context for parallel fights. And so I love that point that you made with a CDC and the AIDS crisis. Um, you know, certainly I don't I don't want to make comparisons there, but it's it's a great analog to, to some of this issue around, you know, how things are, are categorized and named and how problematic that can be. Um, so, you know, it's 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 just crazy because people rely on vape shops to stay off cigarettes. Anybody that's ever spent 15 minutes in a vape shop knows this. Um, I think there's got to be a worthwhile story in that. But I think it's like you said, um, it really goes against the narrative. It's hard to, to talk to a vape shop owner, to spend time in a vape shop and, and, you know, not have this stunning realization that there's more going on here than what's being reported. There's much more to the story than what's being told. And that's why people like Spike are so important. So I think, uh, you know, if everybody hasn't seen the piece that Filter did on Spike's store, store please go, you know, watch that video and read the article on it. It's, it's definitely important context. Um, on that note, we're going to move now and we're going to talk about why we don't see more elected officials stepping up to protect vaping. Uh, Congress has a lot of influence on the FDA. And I wonder, Helen, do you have any guess why we don't see, you know, oversight hearings that, that take up the other side of this issue of why is FDA blocking these authorizations? Why is, has all of this stalled out? Why is there only one completely outdated product that's available to be sold on the market right now? You know, why aren't our elected officials outraged and demanding answers about this? I guess that's a kind of statement, but a question mixed in there for Helen or Spike. Anybody who wants to answer it? I mean, that's for me, that's that feels like a pretty obvious answer. And, you know, we threw the money off the balcony for a reason, um, except it was too late at that point. You know, we have, um, you know, very if you look at the timeline of when we were able to get you know, a voice at public hearings and, you know, whether it was New York State Senate or whether it was, you know, even federally, you know, when when there were our lobbyists, our vape industry lobbyists, not jewel lobbyists, but our, our vapor small industry lobbyists were able to finally get us a voice and get us heard and get us, you know, something out there that had the truth. It was always when we spent the most money. And, 
you know, you can see that pretty easily when, you know, we, we, we lobbied for ourselves. We met with these legislators every year. We'd go and talk to them. We'd go, you know, pay uh, whatever, a thousand dollars a plate for their fancy dinners and all this other stuff that we did in order to try to like figure out how this worked. But then when we spent the big money on the big lobbyists, that was when we got a seat at the table. That's when they, that's when we were heard. That's when they made the points to, to say, you know, like, well, maybe this isn't so bad. And what we realized during those times is that amount of money. And, you know, Eve Vasconcelos because she donated a lot to try, you know, her a lot of money to try to you know, Safada and a lot of organizations try to get a voice. We had to pay money to get the voice. And the reality, the vaping industry was created by people who vaped. We weren't created by business owners and fancy lobbyists and lawyers and people who knew how this worked. We had no idea how it worked. And so we could go there and yell and yell and scream and give them studies and say, but look, but look, but nobody listened because we didn't have enough money in the game. We didn't donate enough to their, you know, their campaigns. We didn't spend enough money and we didn't have the, even if we had spent it, we never could have matched the amount of money that big pharma and big tobacco put into their lobbying to undo anything we were going to do anyway. So it would have been a waste, but you know, the answer is the money in short. Yeah, you know, so I couldn't agree with you more on it's very discouraging and disillusioning as, you know, somebody who's a very small time business owner trying to defend my business and my employees and my customers, just how much money it takes to even be involved in these conversations to even have your opinion considered, you know, sure, you can show up to a committee hearing. And, you know, if you're lucky, you might get, you know, two or three minutes to, to plead for your livelihood. Uh, but the outcome of those committees has already been predetermined in those, you know, closed door meetings with the players that do have the big money to, to get those closed door meetings with the politicians. And, you know, frankly, it's, it's pretty disgusting. Um, I've got another probably obvious question for you, Spike, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because it's worth asking. Um, Harlem is represented by several Democrats in the United States House. Uh, one of them is Adriano Espiat, who is the deputy whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And I want to know, Spike, has the congressman ever visited your store? Because he certainly voted to raise taxes on your store. <laughs> so the funny thing is we've had that store open since 2017. And during that time, we've seen different, you know, House representatives, senators. Actually, I think we've had the same senator for a while and, and city council members and the funny thing is I've never had an in-person meeting with any of them. And I have tried, obviously, to have meetings with all of them and invite them to come to the store and see the people and even bring some of their constituents with them to the meetings, uh, which I did on one occasion with uh, Benjamin, Robert Benjamin, I think was his name. Senator. I think he was a senator for Harlem. And, you know, it didn't matter because we never got meetings with the legislators, only with their chief of staff or their office workers or whatever. And it was always, oh, we're writing all these notes. We're going to take them right back to the legislator. Don't worry. We're going to tell them everything that's going on. And, you know, calling and following up, the answer was always, oh, yeah, well, you know, he, he's very concerned, but, you know, he can't really do anything or she can't really do anything. And even one of them was a chief of staff for the previous administration and then became the city council member. And when she was chief of staff, she kept saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get you a meeting. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get you a meeting. And then she didn't get me one until after session closed. And I said, the session is closed. We can't do anything now. 
So what is the point of, of the meeting when we don't even know what bills are going to be proposed for next year? And she said, oh, well, I guess we'll set you up a meeting next year. And then the following year, she was voted in as the city council member. And when I wrote to her to get a meeting, I wrote six or seven times. I wrote back and forth with her chief of staff and I and, and I was refused a meeting. I was told she doesn't have time. <laughs> and I said, so for two years, I've been trying to get a meeting with the same office. And, and now there's no time again. So, you know, I mean, listen, I guess we didn't donate enough money. So it is what it is. Yeah, it's 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 very discouraging. And, you know, I just want to say thank you for everything that you have done to fight. And I'm certainly sorry that, you know, all of these years are resulting in you having to close your store. And, you know, I think I these these politicians get very disconnected from the day to day life of their constituents. If it's not, you know, some big splashy thing that's going to score them points with their donors or score them votes with the voters, it's they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to take the time to get involved in it. Um, I've got la final. Could I add to that? Top. Yeah, please. Like I was to about to, to hit you with a question, but go ahead. Yeah. I think also what is operating here is the, the politicians are sort of putting their finger to the wind and trying to assess, is it politically viable for them to come out full on and support vaping as a way to help the country's millions of smokers quit smoking. They're really uh, looking at, is it safe to do that? Because we're in a war, right? And the other side has been enormously successful in demonizing, slandering, vaping. We know how they're doing it. They're doing it with junk science. They did it with the so-called teen uh, vaping uh, epidemic. They did it with uh, literally, and we know they've been successful because a, a survey by the National Cancer Institute in 2020 found uh, the people they polled, 34% uh, of people thought electronic cigarettes were just as harmful as cigarettes. 12% uh, thought they were more harmful. 15% thought they were much more harmful. Now, uh, it also showed 24% um, said they just didn't know uh, the difference between the two. So when you've got this mass confusion going on among the public uh, and then the politicians not wanting to put themselves on the line uh, for a very controversial issue, which could get them in trouble with the likes of Michael Bloomberg, uh, the momvocates at Parents Against Vaping, the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, you can understand why they're not going to go and talk to uh, Spike. They're not going to call you up. Uh, they're not going to do that. And I think until we can shift public opinion and the and the politicians see it as that's a winning issue i want to get out ahead of it i'm going to help all these vulnerable groups who have the highest rates of smoking and morbidity and mortality now it's the issue that i can champion they're not going to do it and i'll just another analogy in terms of the war on drugs i think cannabis is a good example now of course cigarettes have never been illegal uh Nicotine has never been illegal. Cannabis has. But 
we had to do the same thing. We had to change the climate and how people thought about cannabis because all of the politicians for decades were lined up against it. They believed the junk science. They engaged in the hysterias and the panics. And then because of the efforts of just so many people to change that narrative, now in so many states, the same politicians who are opposed to legalizing and regulating cannabis, they're charging out ahead. In fact, they want to own the the cannabis dispensaries now. They want to uh, create chains of cannabis dispensaries across across the country. So I wanted to put that out there for people to, to think about how that changed and how we can change the narrative around vaping to get politicians on our side. I, I agree, Helen. And, you know, as discouraging as it is to look at where things are now and where they've been for years, um, I, I think we can look to other policy areas and, and see a roadmap for how we move forward. We just have an incredible amount of work to do. And unfortunately, you know, for people like Spike, who are losing their stores as we speak, you know, time is running out. And so, you know, the quicker that we can fight some of this information, misinformation, the better. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, it feels like at this point, it's so entrenched uh, in the mainstream media narrative, in the political attitudes, that it's just going to take so much time to to get the truth about these products and their potential out there. But certainly we have a roadmap ahead. We just have to keep going down that path, knowing that, you know, one day the truth is going to be widely known, we hope. Um, I want to turn now to our media lapdogs of the week. And for those of you who are regular listeners of the space, uh, media lapdogs is where we discuss the different media outlets and reporters that are really carrying water for Bloomberg philanthropies, spreading their misinformation. Um, and so this week, we want to focus on Mike Stoby, who is a reporter for the Associated Press that covers the CDC. And throughout 2019, Mike wrote about and carried the point of view of the CDC that Avali was directly tied to vape products. We know today that the CDC eventually admitted, far too late, that the culprit was illicit THC vapes laced with vitamin E acetate. And even though Stoby did report on this, he is misstating the connection. Jump ahead to February and August of 2020, Stoby was tweeting about Avali, calling it, quote, vapor's lung, with no mention whatsoever of illicit THC. Um, this is misleading, and frankly, we think Mike can and should do better. This brings up a few obvious questions. Why isn't Stobie holding the CDC to account? Why has he failed to correct the re record on his own reporting and public statements? And I'll go ahead and pause there if any of you have thoughts about that. I mean, the, the, these different media news outlets, <clears throat> they're paid by the same people that the politicians are paid by. So, you know, pharma and tobacco and whoever wants to pay them money or advertise however they want them to advertise, they're the ones that decide what goes out, <clears throat> which is why all of these media outlets have editors. Now, I understand you're talking about tweets and Twitter, and maybe that's a person's personal views or opinions or whatever, but all of those things are going to be colored by whatever their story said. And their story was checked by an editor <clears throat> who made a decision and said, we don't want to piss off these people because they pay our, our bills. They pay your salary. So that, that's what they're allowed to publish. And unfortunately, once people have made a decision, it's very hard to go back on that without looking stupid. You know, I mean, for people to admit that they're wrong, especially people in media and politics, 
it takes a lot because it they they feel like it discredits everything else they've ever said if they admit they're wrong in one instance. And I think that's, you know, there it's been shown that for people listening to a speaker, when someone is able to admit that they were wrong about something, it actually makes them trust everything else that the person says more because they're now aware that that person is able to admit that they were wrong and that in the future they will most likely admit it again if they are wrong. Unfortunately, that doesn't doesn't carry over to people's egos. <laughs> and so it doesn't always work out very well. Yeah, absolutely. Helen, what, what harm do you see being done to tobacco harm reduction as a whole when we see reporters like Stoby fail to clear the air on important issues like this? I, I want to agree with what Spike just said, that to go back on, on, a, on a particular position for publications is really, really hard. I mean, they will do, they're, they're happy to correct misspellings or the wrong title, but when they're so completely wrong, uh, and this happens all the time with drugs uh, in, in the United States, uh, the, the drug wars, this is another drug war, uh, the war on nicotine. They cannot, they can't change course because it would undermine their credibility. And I'm going to use another uh, example from a war on an, an illicit drug, and that is um, crack, crack cocaine. I mean, they whipped up the New York Times uh, most prominently, which is also uh, centrally involved in the nicotine drug panic, um, it whipped up a massive hysteria around crack cocaine in the late 80s and 90s. You know, they, they talked about crack babies. Uh, and it was only 20, 25 years on that they apologized for that. And uh, there's a, a time capsule uh, thing that they do. And they went back and looked at the coverage and uh, you know, admitted that they were wrong and that they were part of the problem. So I'm not confident that they're going to come out and apologize. But the reality is we don't really need them to do that. Uh, at some point, they will start covering uh, nicotine and vaping in a more neutral way and I think eventually get on board once there's more science, when there's more uh, activism around, uh, around the issue. Now, in terms of this, um, I mean, there was something that you had asked about the, the CDC and, and, Vitter and, and um, Vitterly, is that right? What was your question related to uh, Stobie? Oh, what what harm it does to tobacco harm reduction when reporters like him fail to really clear the air on this? It probably the worst is that it does not allow people to have the correct information, smokers to have the correct information to then try to make the switch. It's it blocks smokers from switching. And I heard this regularly 
at New York harm reduction educators, people would come in on the day of the group and say, I heard this, Helen. What's going on? I'm afraid. So that is the most pernicious thing that the media does, in, in my opinion. There's many, there's many uh, negative uh, consequences of their coverage, but that's probably the number one thing, that it blocks people who smoke from actually making the transition. And we know if they continue to smoke, uh, especially at high rates, uh, they're at much greater risk for a smoking-related illness and disability and premature death. I, I just had a, I had a comment on, on, one, on one of the things you said, Helen, actually on two of the things that you said, Helen, that, you know, the, the number of people that come in the shop and actually say, but these things cause cancer or these things cause heart attacks or I heard they cause this lung illness, it's huge. And, and there was actually a time when I had a customer who had been vaping for seven years at the time of Evala. I literally had been vaping consistently and not smoked a cigarette in seven years, went back to smoking. And when they finally came to my shop and said, um, I need a new vape. And I said, well, we haven't seen you in like eight months, 10 months. Like where did you buy liquid somewhere else? That's fine if you did, but you know, are you still vaping? And they said, no, I'm smoking again. And I, I said, well, did you get divorced? Did someone die? Like, what, what made you go back smoking? Because that seems to be like what, you know, if you moved, if you got divorced, if someone died, that seems to be what sends people back to smoking. They said, no, I heard on the news that it caused this thing. I, and I just stopped and looked at the person who was a well-educated 50-year-old lawyer. And I looked at them and said, are you a moron? Because you don't seem like a moron to me. I'm like, you've been vaping for seven years. You have never once gotten sick, gotten short of breath, gotten anything negative consequence from vaping. But you're going to trust what the news is saying after seven years of vaping? What is wrong with you? And he's like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I was thinking. And he did go back to vaping and he's still vaping now. But he smoked for, for almost a year, nearly a year because of what happened in the media. So there are actual consequences to what they do and they don't realize it. The other thing I wanted to say, and Helen, I love you and I hate to disagree with you, but sometimes I feel like you got these rose-colored glasses and you love to see things in a positive, happy way. It doesn't matter how much science comes out. It doesn't matter if God himself comes out of the sky and shows proof that e-cigarettes are great for, for quitting smoking and don't cause any harm to, to health. The only thing that's going to make the media show a more positive light is if we start paying money. If the taxes go up and the money goes into the government, that is the only thing that is going to cause positive media. <laughs> and that's my personal opinion, but I don't, I took off my rose colored glasses when I lost this store. So there you go. <laughs> I guess mine are still partly on. <laughs> I know I like to, I like to side with Helen on the, the rose colored glasses, but Spike, there are days when I definitely feel where you are coming from so deeply. Um, but that's all the time we have for today. I wanted to thank you both so much for coming on and thank you both for all of the excellent work that, that you've done in the area of nicotine vaping and advocacy. Um, Helen, can you tell us where folks can go to follow your work on this subject? Yes, at um, filtermag.org. Excellent, filtermag.org. Right, and feel free 
to use the the short video that I made of Spike. I made that because I wanted to document how important uh, vape shops are. I wanted to sort of like put a uh, a marker down that, uh, I mean, if the worst happens and every vape shop closes, we need to document the amazing uh, parts of the vaping, the the small vaping industry, like that has to be document documented somewhere. So, so please use this video uh, in advocacy to show it to people who don't know about uh, the role of vape shops. Just use it in any way that you think will help our side. I I really appreciate that, and I think Spike would too. Absolutely. Uh, and Spike, where can people go to, to follow your work and keep up with, with all things Vape New York? Well, I mean, listen, for now we have a website, but with the way the government goes, you know, that could definitely disappear. So, um, and, you know, they could probably ban me off Twitter if I say things that they don't like um, or Facebook. So every pretty much everywhere could be banned, um, but I'll keep VapeNY.com as long as I can and at least update people and customers as to what they can do to continue to get product that keeps them off of cigarettes because, you know, eventually I, I fear that all the vape shops will be gone. And when that happens, you know, we will do everything that we can. And I've spoken with a no number of people, including some that are listening right now, about our way to create an underground railroad of vaping products to make sure that people can stay off of cigarettes. So there will be a way to find us, whether it's through the websites or Twitter or emails or message boards or whatever private ways we can find to reach each other. Um, and as long as we can keep people getting the products that they need to stay off of cigarettes, you know, in the best way that we can, um, I think that that's what matters at this point. And I just want to quickly say thank you to, because there, there are a bunch of people that are listening right now who have, you know, put their reputations and themselves on the line to get the truth out there. Um, who've done the work, who've submitted the FOIA requests, who've donated money to the people who actually listen. And I'm going to throw out actually a plug for Helen and Filter Mag, which actually shares truthful media. Um, so if anybody wants to make a donation, you know, you could donate to Filter Mag because we pay a lot of money, whether we realize it or not, for the media that we do get and the news that we do get. Um, but most of it is bullcrap. So if you wanted to donate to Filter where you can actually get truthful information, that's always a nice thing to do. Um but yeah, I mean, listen, we're at, we're at a point now where we can just hold on the best we can and make sure we keep people off of cigarettes that are already off of cigarettes because that's it's not looking like we're going to be able to convert too many more once we're all gone. I don't mean to end on a low note. Sorry. <laughs> well, I think I think that's an important note to end on, though it may not be, uh, you know, the most uh, positive, but it's definitely the truth. And, you know, there's there's a lot at stake here, certainly. Um, but thank you both again for taking the time to participate today. And we will be back next Monday at our usual time of 3 p.m. Eastern to talk about all things state policy related. So we will see you all then. Thank you.